You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee, and joining me as always in Southampton, England, is our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. And Jonathan, we are returning to our Run It Back series. This is kind of your baby, so I'm going to let you set this one up. And then also I'll let you introduce our, our guest to talk about today's game. All right, so I've picked the 2001 Scotty's final because it's the 20th anniversary. And this year's the 40th anniversary of the Scott Tournament of Hearts, so it's kind of a nice halfway point. Um, We'll get into the game in a second, but our guest today is Sean Graham from uh, the Game of Stones podcast. So welcome, Sean. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. This is uh, is nice not to have to do the intro myself. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) We, tr- uh, we tried to get Scott, but Scott is apparently on vacation. So, <laughs> in his apartment. Yes. In his apartment. <laughs> right. I think he's just driving aimlessly somewhere between here and Toronto, just driving in circles. He had to get out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's one way to handle the uh, the cabin fever of lockdown. <laughs> uh, All right. So. The 2001 Scotty's Final. It's got, uh, I think it's an interesting game. I think we had a little bit of banter. It's interesting for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's, I think it's the game where Colleen Jones really kind of broke out and could kind of make a claim she's one of the greats. But I also think it's a game which, and having watching the play-by-play commentary, like she gets no respect. I've never seen in any sport ever a two-time champion just get completely mauled by uh, the play-by-play team. And it's even funnier given the fact that she works <laughs> for that play-by-play team. So that's like the first kind of puzzle in this game. It's it's also got, we also like, so part of the reason I wanted Sean on is because in one of your episodes, you're kind of going through kind of GOAT teams and players and someone, I think it was at the Ottawa Curling Club, suggested Julie Skinner. And so you weren't, you weren't so sure about that. I think there's a case yeah. to be made that she's kind of sneakily under respected and she she throws a pistol of a game like she has the best shooting percentage she makes a ton of shots she is dialed in and really kind of in command of the ice like the kind of her presence in this game is really strong but she had a bit of a weird career which is she basically showed up in her early 20s won two scotties went to an olympics retired she basically retired at 25 uh was talked back into playing with kelly law and I think that I think one of the things that's kind of forgotten is this was really seen as a super team back in like 99, 2000, 2001, that Georgina Wheatcroft was a former champion. Julie Skinner was and Kelly Law was kind of seen as the up and coming skip in BC. So they were formed together for a sole purpose of getting to the 2002 Olympics. They achieved that, but kind of underperformed in Salt Lake. And so I think they're kind of one of those great underrated teams, if you will. So it's an interesting, interesting matchup. So what what were your kind of impressions of this game uh, prior to rewatching it. 
I had no memory of this game, to be honest. Other, yeah, <laughs> other than knowing that Colleen Jones had won and that this was her third one, and it seems like three is a magic number to get you into that pantheon of all-time greats, and they run through it during the broadcast several times, like the number of people who have won three. So that third win, I, I, and, yeah. it, and that it launches her into this stretch over the next few years. That's sort of my memory of it. The specifics of the game itself, I didn't really have much memory of. And it does create this incredible what if in the 10th end of what could happen, which I know we'll talk about. But the game, the game itself, I don't think is memorable other than that moment, really. And as you said, I think Don Whitman is the one leading the charge against Colleen Jones. The number of times as I was watching this that I wrote Don Whitman is having none of it almost every end that, that he was so <laughs> frustrated with what Colleen Jones was doing. It's great. So for, from that, from that perspective, it's worth the rewatch, but there's nothing in there that really stood out as a signature moment other than the 10th end. And even, even the 11th end, I'm not so sure how great that is. Cause from the overhead, it looks pretty obvious what's going to happen. But so I think it's more the significance of the result as opposed to the game itself. And it's kind of crazy to think about you talking about three Scotties gets you into the Pantheon. At this point, there's been 20 Scotties. So to, at if you've won two, you've won 10% of all Scotties. <laughs> but they're, I mean, they're counting Verapazor in there, right? Like, he, and that, so that's pre yeah, they're talking like, tournament before. of hearts. Yeah. So it's sort of national championships. Um, but yeah, it, it is strange to think of the, the eras of women's curling, I guess. And it goes through just top skip to, to net the next top skip to the next top skip. And there doesn't this, maybe this is the first time where there's really significant competition between who's going to be the best. Cause there is a chance that Kelly Locke could have gone on a run and uh, like the run that Colleen Jones goes yeah. on. Yeah. So I guess question one do you, is my, do you think my perception's right? That Colleen Jones is kind of shocked. I think she's actually fairly underrated as an elite curler. Um, right. Would you agree with that perception, Sean, or not? Or do you think that's just my age or something? As the clueless American, Colleen Jones won approximately 72 Scotties. How is she underrated? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know if Colleen Jones is underrated. I think she is a polarizing figure. And I think that there yeah. are a lot of people who don't like her. And that yeah. might lead to some underratedness but I, I think it's more that I, I think when we're talking about the all-time greatest I, I forgot to look up I don't know where TSN ranked her in the all-time uh, rankings last year she or, was or third which I thought was fair so they had her at third so I went and checked that last night they had her at third and they had Kim Kelly at uh, sixth I think yeah I think that's fair I think yeah so I, I think she's properly yeah. rated and I, I do remember in the moments of the early 2000s people just hating her for a variety of reasons, not least of which is the gum that she yeah. so aggressively <laughs> chews when she plays. Uh, so I, I do. I just think that there is that there's there's a personal thing there that she grates on some people for whatever reason. And that's why I think she's not really celebrated. Even if, when you listen to the crowd in this game, they're clearly pulling for Kelly Law, which doesn't really ever happen where Team Canada is getting more crowd noise than the opponent unless it happens to be in their home province i find so 
it really does speak yeah. to me that this team wasn't really embraced by the curling fans at large. Is it like the Tom Brady thing where they just they win so much that it's boring? I I don't think so. So I, okay. So my reads this. I think there's a couple of things. One, she's a she's a diva. I'll, I'll say that. <laughs> I, I actually like her diva right? But like, if you watch the like the typical curling Canada like CBC inter, halftime interviews, like a very humble skip. Like think of Jeff Stoughton or Kelly Law's kind of like that. Oh yeah, you know, we'll go back and forth. Like, like, super vague, non-committal answers. Oh, we hope to win. Very earnest, very humble. Colleen Jones has like media training and she just, yeah. she steals both the pregame, the mid game and the post game interviews. Right. She's just like, she knows how to project personality. And I think that kind of grates against a certain kind of like curler, Canadian curlers, especially like their curlers humble. I'd say. I was about to say, cause in America she'd be celebrated like for being yeah. a good quote, like yeah. in America they'd celebrate that. Yeah. So she's, I think she's not, she's, she's a diva. I actually like it. Cause I like, I like personality. I think the, the humble thing kills our sports sometimes. <laughs> so that's the first thing. I think the gum definitely, I think the two other things that go against her are she plays a very defensive style. And, um, so you, you were locking in on, on Don Whitman. I was locking in on Mike Harris. Who's kind of, he, Harris is a draw curler. He's just like, he just plays that what I'd call the Toronto style. Like just throw 15 rocks in, into the forefoot and see what happens. <laughs> as we'll find out in the play-by-play. I think like Colleen Jones is having none of that. And then I, I think there's a bit of kind of regional, like I'd say snobbery, to be honest. Like the, the, if you're not from, if you're not from the right regions, I mean, you're not from the right pedigree. Like if you're, if you're, if your dad won the briar and you're up and comer, like you get, like you just get all these passes. right? <laughs> and if you're not from the right region and not kind of from the right lineage, I think you're kind of, there's a little bit of, pushback i think i think because the other one who's a bit like this is kind of young brad gushu like he basically got no respect i'd say until about five years ago before that like the conventional curling thing was kind of talking down to brad yeah he won an olympic gold medal but russ was the one who really helped him right (laughs) which is it's absurd to think but it's because he's from the he's from the rock uh didn't really come from a big curling family you know and he was kind of, again, maybe not super, you know, he kind of cashed in his gold medal and, and was really ambitious in a way that I think, again, kind of grates against curlers sometimes. So that, that's my read for why. All right. So let's go back to 2001 and we'll kind of start off just by kind of getting the lay in the, the lay of the land of what was going on in 2001, kind of like we did with our episode about the 1997 Briar final. And again, we're going just to set up what we're doing here with this series. We're looking at basically 25 years worth of Olympic curling. Cause the, by the time we get to Beijing, we've really been dealing with, we've been dealing with the Olympics for 25 years, going back to 1997 when you had teams trying to qualify for the Olympics to those first Olympics. And now, 25 years later with the 2022 Beijing games, when we eventually close out this series, however we do that. And we're not exactly going in order. We will have um, other games that maybe are between 97 and 2001. So we're not, we're not staying on, on a true timeline here. We're going to bounce back and forth based off of, based off of importance and just where Jonathan kind of steers this series. I'm, it's going to be fun for me as well. So let's go back to 2001. Uh, what were you guys doing in 2001, in February of 2001? I was in 10th grade. So I was 
trying to survive high school, I guess. <laughs> Were you curling then or not? No, I, I didn't. So we played as kids. Scott and I would, would play. And then he kept up with it through high school. And I didn't. So I would play hockey and sometimes basketball during the winter. And I didn't pick up curling again until uh, till university when my roommate needed a, a player. So for me, I, I would have been watching all this. And uh, but that's yeah, nothing too exciting in the life of a 15 year old Sean. I don't think what's going on. So I was um, my first year of grad school at uh, University of Minnesota. So I was curling at the St. Paul Curling Club at the time. And actually, it was really hard back then to watch curling because uh, it's like pre-internet streaming and there was no curling on US TV. So I have a weird dead zone of watching curling from 2000 to 2005. So uh, I think this might actually be the first time I saw this game, but I kind of knew it for the, for the final. The last couple of shots were kind of famous back then. Uh, I was a junior in high school, so I was when I was in eleventh grade, so one year ahead of ahead of Sean. And at the time, I was obsessed with college basketball. And in February of two thousand one, I was on my high school's academic team, and we were we were two thousand one Oklahoma State Quiz Bowl champions. Man, yeah, all right. Still have, I still have the state championship ring. In fact, it's in the it's in the closet next to where we're recording right now. But I still have the thing. All right. So staying, yeah, going back to two thousand one, uh, the year in sports, kind of in in two thousand one. Um, earlier, uh, earlier in the year, uh, just after New Year, uh, Oklahoma beat Florida State to win the national championship. So that was a big deal uh, where where I was going to high school there in Oklahoma. Uh, the Ravens beat the Giants in one of the most unremarkable Super Bowls possibly ever. Everyone knew it was going. In fact, I knew it was going to be so boring. I actually went to a movie during the Super Bowl. <laughs> as, even as a sports obsessed high schooler, I went and watched a movie rather than watch this game. Uh, probably the most significant sports thing to happen in the first half of 2001 uh, was the death of Dale Earnhardt. Um, and in fact, that happened during this tournament uh, on February 18th on the last lap of the Daytona 500, Dale Earnhardt passing away. I'd still, I still remember where I was when I, when I heard that he had passed. Do you guys remember where you were when Dale Earnhardt died? Uh, or is that kind of yeah. a Southern thing to ask people, where were you when you found out Dale Earnhardt died? I, I have no idea. It was a big deal. Yeah, I, it, I think I think it's like in Canada. I don't think I followed NASCAR all that closely, but it was a big sports deal, and I was in the U.S. at that point, so I remember it being like. I didn't find out till the next day. Again, it's like this is kind of like pre. It's like early internet culture where there's still a time lag. Like it's not like today where my phone blows up if anything, if anything happens. Um, so. Yeah, I do remember, but I found out the next morning. I was like, oh, the, and it just was kind of like, he was the only NASCAR guy I knew. So is that way for a lot of people? It's shocking in that way, right? And so it's shocking in that sense, right? It'd be like if someone doesn't follow basketball and LeBron James died or something, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, In college basketball, Stanford was actually number one at the time. It's amazing to think (laughs) 20 years ago that Stanford was was good at college basketball. they would go on to lose, I think, in the Elite Eight, and Duke would actually wind up winning the national title that year in in Minneapolis. The Final Four was in Minneapolis that year. Jonathan, did you go? Uh, I did not go. Man, that's too bad. 
<laughs> the next I year, went to a Purdue Gophers football game that year. Okay. <laughs> In the NBA, uh, at this point, this is like peak Vince Carter. So I wanted to ask you about that, Sean. Like this is like peak. In fact, this is peak Vince Carter because this is this is the year they were really good. They made the Eastern Conference semifinals, and this was, of course, the year that uh, Vince Carter would attend his graduation in North Carolina on the day of Game 7 and then miss the potential game winner with two seconds left against Allen Iverson and the Sixers. So, dude, were you – how Raptors aware were you at the time, Sean? Yeah, so I would have been all in on that, uh, on that Raptors team, right? Because th- this is – the peak Vince Carter stuff, when you talk about remembering where you are, I remember where I was for the dunk contest mm-hmm. the year before uh, that was in Oakland. And then I remember the game, right? Yeah. And then game seven, I, I do remember the controversy and people talking about it and not really understanding why everyone was so mad at him. And, but that series was, series was so good because you had Allen Iverson go. Uh, I can't remember <laughs> if he got 50 in one of the games in Philly, but then Vince Carter gets 50 at one of the games in Toronto, that series back yeah. and forth was great. And I, one, one of the things from that team that was so much fun was that you had Charles Oakley and Antonio Davis there for the Raptors. And I just remember every time Antonio Davis mm-hmm. took a elbow jump shot, I was just like, no, don't, no, 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 no. And then it would go in and be, yes, it was one of those with <laughs> Antonio Davis. Uh, but that team, and, and there are people around who still argue that that's, or maybe not anymore, but before, 2019 that that was the best Raptors team ever and uh certainly as a kid in high school oh, yeah who didn't before 2019 really it definitely was yeah well I mean some people the, the debate was between the team that made the Eastern Conference Finals against the Cavs in mm-hmm. 16 or whenever that was but the as a kid who didn't really care about the NHL uh that Raptors team gave me something to watch and pay attention to sports wise through the spring so it, it was super fun, uh, and especially for a team that was terrible really before that and then would go on to be terrible again. Uh, that that was really a, a peak for the franchise. The Sixers would go on to the finals where they would lose to the Lakers. Um, and then in the NHL, this was the year that Ray Bork uh, got his cup with the, uh, with the Avalanche, beating the Devils in seven games in what was a – for a seven-game final, I remember it being kind of boring just because of the two teams that were in it, especially like anytime the Devils are in the Stanley Cup final, it's a snooze fest, in my opinion. <laughs> uh, but Bor- Ray Bork wind- wound up winning his cup. Um, elsewhere in the world, uh, in the U.S., we had just seen George W. Bush sworn in as president in January after everything involving the vote in Florida Uh, but George Bush was sworn in in January, just prior to this Scotty's in Canada. All right. Who remembers who the Canadian prime minister was? I hope both of us do. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, it's still Jean Chrétien, right? Yeah. Yeah. Paul Martin's won. Oh, four. 2003. 2003. I guess Trudeau had just passed away, right? Trudeau passed away fall of 2000. Yeah. Yeah. So that was kind of a big event in Canada. Best picture at the 2001 Academy Awards was Gladiator. Uh, The number one movie at the time was Hannibal, which was the sequel to Silence of the Lambs. And here is my favorite point before we move on to actually talking about this game. Uh, Do you know what the number one song was this week 
in Canada. And it, it's, it's so hilarious to me that that's why I'm bringing it up. <laughs> it's gotta, it's gotta be a Nickelback song. No, it's, it's gotta be, it's, it's, it's somehow, no. <laughs> it's somehow funnier. Oh no. Is, right. it, is it like one week by the bare naked ladies? No, it's, it's sandstorm. <laughs> the the lyric free like i will say that sandstorm does get me pumped like if i'm at like a football game or a basketball game but i can't imagine it being the number one song in a whole country for a whole week <laughs> all right but yeah good job canada you made sandstorm a number one a number one record <laughs> All right. Enough All right. of 2000. All right. So we are we are firmly in 20, 2001 now. If I weren't afraid of getting dinged for copyright infringement, I would be I, I will <laughs> I would insert Sandstorm and just have it just bumping in the background as we talk about this. But let's let's watch some hits, Jonathan. All right. It's still three rock, right? Canada goes four rock next quad. Uh, it's still three rock. So that makes it a bit more defensive. Um I think I don't think we're going to do a play-by-play of every hit, primarily because my notes are like hit, 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 like literally hit, 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 hit. Uh, I think we can easily dispense with the first two ends. The, the first end, I think, you still see this in kind of Scotty's play today, where it's like someone drops a top four and you just trade hits, especially in a final. I'd say uh, it just it just goes into a blank end for for um, Kelly Law. Is there anything in the first end that jumped out? So for me, there was nothing about the curling specifically. Uh, the, the couple of things about the broadcast that I noted that I thought were pretty interesting, uh, like they have a menu of what's coming up, which I thought was weird. Um, like they tease that we're going to have fifth end break interviews. And uh, so I thought that was kind of strange. But the other thing I really noticed in the first end is, you know, we talk about how they drag Colleen Jones a little bit for her strategy. They drag Julie Skinner as well. Uh, Don Whitman says she can be good, oh, yeah. but she can be really bad. Like they drag her pretty hard. And I was, I was really surprised that yeah. they, they did that for really no reason. I felt. Yeah. Especially given that she, she had the best game shooting wise for sure. <laughs> and she, you know, again, this is also another, this is, she's a three time Scotty's champ at this point, which is this, as many as home. Yeah. Time, right. So <laughs> it's a bit it is actually i mean I, I do think it's there's like a casual sexism in some of the the commentary here back in 2000 right it's a pretty it's kind of shocking just to go back and see a bit of that second is the same thing right there's the, the commentators also are a talk they, at first i think it begins like passive aggressively of colleen preferring an open style of play and again she just goes top four and again they trade hits uh, Kelly lost stuffs her PL attempt and so ends up kind of with the accidental force, if you will, here and goes up one nothing. Sorry, there is another moment I think that's really important in this end. So Georgina Wheatcroft flashes a hit on a biter that's at basically the nine o'clock position looking down on the house. She flashes it. And then later in the end, they're a little higher about the 10 o'clock position of biter there. And they're throwing the opposite turn at it. So Kelly Law's turn, Kelly Law's team is throwing the intern. So inside out and Colleen Jones is throwing outside in on the out turn on the back and forth in that spot. And I think that's kind of important once we get to the 10th yeah. end that Kelly Law doesn't seem comfortable out there. Uh, and that I think that kind of plays into where they where we get to once we get to the ninth. 
and how Kelly Law ends up playing that end because of that miss, because of not being sure out there that far in the weeds. And it's almost, if, if it wasn't a sporting event, I would almost say, say that it's foreshadowing, uh, like in a movie, that that, that moment kind of portends what's going to happen <laughs> later uh, in pretty much that same spot on the ice. Third end's a bit more interesting. So again, so Lagos draws top four. Jones hits, then it's a hit and roll out. Jones then does throw her corner guard. The announcers announce the game's on. So, so bear in mind, there's one corner guard, nothing else in play. And then Don <laughs> Whitman says the game is on. <laughs> so it's just like, you know, early 2000s curling. Um, and, and basically, I, I mean, I'm not going to go through every single shot, but basically by the end of the end, Law ends up, it has a position to draw top eight. So they're sitting top eight to sit three with two other stones back four. And Jones actually has a pretty tough draw here, right? She's basically got a draw against three, all biting around the four foot area. And the the line is not easy, is what I would say. Like it's, and she basically, she draws down. I cannot unsee the sweeping here because they actually, they're using the sweeping of the carve thing and it just, just rubs the, the top stone. And if they got by that top stone, she probably holds her one, but they end up giving a steal of one to Canada instead. But it's interesting. So there's two things that jumped out to me here. One is that Jones, when she felt comfortable, did attack, right? She basically waited for the miss and then attacked as opposed to attacking at the get-go. And two, that the ice is just not that great here, that you're not getting mm-hmm. much curl even on draws. So it's not kind of contemporary curling ice. There weren't a whole lot of made shots in this end. <laughs> no. <laughs> Aaron, here, so here's my question. In order for this to be considered a classic game and for us to sitting be sitting here 20 years later talking about it, for for it to wind up being a classic, how important was it for Colleen Jones to go down to nothing early. What do you think, Sean? Uh, that, that's a, I don't associate this game. I never have. And even rewatching it as a Colleen Jones comeback game necessarily. So I, I don't know if, if falling behind makes it that much of a difference other than increasing the entertainment value as the, the broadcasters just continue to drag her. But in terms of the, the way the game is played, maybe it makes it a little more interesting that, she's forced a little bit to be somewhat more aggressive, but I, I don't, it's a good question. And I don't know how different it would have been, say if Colleen Jones makes this draw and they're tied going, uh, going to the fourth end. So yeah, I, 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 that's a tough one for me to situate the comeback and the lead that Kelly law has into the importance of the game. So fourth end, I think pretty similar. It's like, again, it's top four peel, a lot of changes of hits and Jones ends up having a free draw for two, but it draws short for one. So she's left kind of with one on the measure. Um, so it's, a, it's again, it's a little more junky than the, the announcers kind of say. The thing I'd note is that the, the come around game again starts late. It starts with the third stones, not, not early on. They basically wait for the half miss and then play a freeze as opposed to kind of throwing up guards and wrapping around. Um, anything else there from that end? Yeah, the Kim Kelly guard, I when I was watching this, I all capped and uh, bolded that, that Kim Kelly throws a centerline guard uh, with the, as the team with the hammer, which, yeah, I don't think you see that today at all, uh, that they're coming in, no. doing something, trying to move around the stones in the house. And then there's a, a moment where uh, Colleen Jones is about to throw, and she's behind the hack, and Kim Kelly says something like, I think he can tuck most of it, or 
tuck all of it on her first shot. And Colleen Jones doesn't hear and says, what? And Kim Kelly just goes, oh, never mind. That is something you would never see today. Like, And this really stood out to me, the way they're talking before shots. This is clearly the pre-sports psychologist yeah. era. Because something like that, where a member of well, the sweep or one of the sweepers says something and the skip doesn't hear it and questions, yeah. oh, what was that? The, that's never happening in 2020 at the elite level where the sweepers are going to be like, oh, don't worry about it. Like that, that's not going to happen. So, and there's a few of those moments that yeah. really stood out to me, just the, the communication and the communication too on the, that first Colleen Jones shot where they're calling the sweeping off and then they get down and they're not sure if they're even second yeah. shot. So there is some bad communication moments there uh, throughout the game. Uh, and certainly that was the first one that stood out to me was Kim Kelly's sort of ongoing narrative that she has throughout the whole game, getting in the way a little bit of Colleen Jones's preparation for a shot. Yeah, I think so. Uh, we'll get to that in a little bit later on, because Colleen Jones is actually an innovator here. And she, her coach is Ken Bagnell, who's a sports psychologist. And actually, he's kind of consulted with Curling Canada for the last two decades. So I think she's early on the sports psychology stuff, but I think you're right. It is interesting that the team, lack of a better term, team communication protocols aren't there, right? We don't see the Chelsea carry where everyone's lines are kind of set, right? Where every single time it's the exact same script they're following. Uh, it, there's a little bit kind of, especially later on in the game, there's a lot more nerves in terms of who says what when, right? But mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting, that part of it. Um, so end five, and this is where really the, the like Mike Harris really begins to rip into Colleen Jones. So they're down, they're down two one here, right? Which isn't terrible, but I think today any team down two one's probably throwing a center guard. But both teams are really struggling to read the ice and how the stone's gonna play. Law managed to draw back eight with a little tap back to now sit first and second with Nova Scotia sitting third and fourth. And then Colleen Jones is now forced to do, I, I kind of highlighted this as one of the potential shots of the game. Cause I, this is tough. Even today I'd say this is tough. She basically throws a hit roll freeze that takes like basically Kelly law is looking at putting the game away here, right? That if, if Colleen Jones hits and rolls out, it's a two. If she misses, it's, it's a three and Colleen Jones hits and rolls frozen to force law to one. And that's, that's actually a huge game saver there to kind of hold the three, one as opposed to four, one, or five one. So I kind of highlight that as one of our potential shots of the game there, but anything else jump out for you, Sean? No, not nothing other than what you said, but I think the shot that Colleen Jones makes is the shot of the game. I think it is by far the best executed shot. The one of the few called and made shots in this game. And the, yeah, the roll to the freeze is perfect. There's no space between those stones. They are touching and it's a total yeah. game saver early in the game. And I think that's the moment where you start to see a bit of a momentum shift once as we get to the second half. But yeah, that shot is, it's great. And I think that's like, I've got the theory with skips that like there's only two shots you can throw, which is you either convert a scoring attempt or you throw a save, what I call a save. And I wish they actually kept those stats. So basically you're right, your, your team's in trouble. And in four and five, Colleen Jones has to throw game savers, right? If she misses that draw against three or she doesn't get that hit and roll, it's it's a, it's huge daylight for, for team law. And then it's probably over, right? So two saves or you've got to convert a scoring attempt, right? If there's a big end on the line, you've got to basically score it. 
So I've got a th- I've got a theory in club play. You can ask your skip to make throw one save shot and one conversion shot a game, but if you ask them <laughs> to do more than that, then it's on the rest of the team. <laughs> Which I think, and I, I, that's both when I'm playing front end. Like I put that pressure on me as front end and as a skip. That if your skip's got to throw a save multiple times a game, eventually they're not going to make it, right? So it's kind of I, I kind of think Colleen Jones here saves the game early, if you will. Doesn't really throw lights out, but it's kind of two back to back saves or. Are pretty big. Um, okay. Fifth end break. I kind of highlighted it because the, so part of it's like Colleen gives great analysis, actually. <laughs> like she, I think like our interview is great. Part of it, she's a professional media person, mm-hmm. obviously. And they ask her for her game plan. She kind of teased them a bit, but then she goes on quoting her directly here. We're a very patient team. We're muckers and grinders. We don't mind waiting for our opportunity. It has to be absolutely right before we do go. I think that last sentence there has to be absolutely right before we do go is kind of, it gives you like a sense of how they're playing the game. And what's funny here is they go back to the booth and Don Whitman and Joan McCusker, Mike Harris immediately talk how she has to play more aggressively. Right. I, th- I think they just didn't listen to her. It's like, she's defensive. That's Colleen. And so I think there's, she's, there's a bit of like snobbery to her. I, I don't kind of get why her coworkers are being so mean to her, but it's also like, like she's got, in some sense, I actually think she's a really clever strategy here, right? She's, I'd say she's actually is pretty mentally tough. I actually say she's one of the, the tougher ones ever. Like she throws off misses. She doesn't care that they're behind. She brought, she's, she's early to work with a sports psychologist and Ken Bagnall. And I think she, in a certain sense, is a brilliant strategist in this sense. She picked a strategy that worked for her team because she, she knows coming from Nova Scotia, she's, she's not going to have the, the pick of kind of the most talented player. She's got a pick from her pool, if you will. And then, and she forced her opponents to play. I think the second part is kind of key. Like Kelly Law is playing Colleen Jones's game here all the way from start to finish. And I think if there's any mistake, Kelly Law's team should looking back on this game is they really got sucked into playing a hitting game. Right. So what do you guys, first of all, do you agree with my analysis? And then can you think of other cases where a team gets discounted for playing the quote unquote wrong way? but still managed to win? Oh, yeah, there's a bunch of those, um, especially in college sports. So, like, basically any college basketball team that ran the Princeton offense, because the the thing, and it goes to, like, underdog strategies. I had a coach tell me once that, you know, he he was never going to get top talent, and he knew that he – had to make a choice. He either had to slow the game way down or speed the game way up. And this particular coach said, I chose to speed the game up because that was a lot more fun to me. You know, there most college coaches are such control freaks that they'll prefer the other way. Cause they'll prefer, cause you one, if you slow it way down, you can, con- you have a lot more control as a coach. And two, it, you're, you're not going to get blown out. So any college basketball team that runs the Princeton offense and that is just looking for the backdoor cut every single time and they're not going to throw that pass until until they get open. Um, college foot like trestle ball, college football teams that you know that that punt a lot. Uh, you know those Ohio State teams won a lot when trestle was there, but they were never known as as innovators. Um, and I mean. A, I can't look down on the defensive style. Like I think going into this, you were kind of making fun of me saying that I didn't think that this game was that great thinking that it was because of the style of play. 
Jonathan, I'm a Virginia Tech season ticket holder for football. I watched Frank <laughs> Beamer coach football for almost 30 years. I have no problem with the curling equivalent of punting from the 40 yard line. Like I, it, it's, it's in my bones. It's, it, it's a parasite that has infected me that like, I look at, I look at punts from positive territory and just go, Oh no, this is good. That's a good punt. Good. We're good. Let's go get them. Um, so no, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with the style of play. Uh, so those, I mean, those kind of teams on the football side, but then on the, on the opposite end of the coin, um, Kentucky football in the late nineties when Hal mummy was there and they first brought that fast paced, no huddle all the time, pass every down what they called the air raid to big time college football playing in the sec. They were really looked down on, but you look at it and from the time that bear Bryant left Kentucky to go to Texas A&M in the fifties up until when mummy got there, I mean, Kentucky was the wilderness when it came to football. And then they got there and they actually went to decent bowl games because and they they beat Alabama one year running this offense because no one knew no one had seen it before. So I think I think that they got discounted a lot. It's a, I mean, the team any any time a team goes to an extreme, they're gonna get discounted regardless of how much they win. Shoot, even even the Warriors, when they won their first NBA championship. Every single night you had Charles Barkley on TNT going, yeah, you can't win an NBA championship shooting jump shots. And then they won, and then they won again, and then they won again, and now every team is doing it. Yeah, for sure. Can you can you think of any analogies, Sean? Or Well, I mean, we did start the podcast with Ryan saying that anytime the New Jersey Devils were in a Stanley Cup final, it wasn't any good. And I think the Devils would be an example of that too, playing the trap. Uh, with Marty Brodeur. So the, the, that that's a team that doesn't really get much credit. And then in, in terms of the, the curling side of it, I think Bingy Wang and her world championship suffers from this a bit as well because she would play very defensively then. And I remember Heather Nedowin coming off the game once, or off the ice once, and just saying they don't want to play. They're not interested in actually playing the game after she lost in a very defensive game. So I, I do think the... The Bingy Wang World Championship is one that doesn't get enough credit for for what she was able to do. Yeah, but the other one I'm thinking of is Muhammad Ali, the rope dope. I, th- I honestly think Colleen mm. Jones rope dopes Kelly <laughs> Law here because the first six ends, it looks like she doesn't want to play, and then it's it's hit 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 hit, and the last the last four ends are are kind of crazy, right? Um, okay, so let's go let's go back to the game. I know that I, I sort of, I think Scott gets mad at me sometimes for making fun of the, the media. Scott or Mark Lee asked the worst question in the history of sports media to Kelly Law. He says, you've had pressure on Colleen Jones through the first half of the game. Do you want to keep that up? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Like, give me a break. Like, <laughs> like no one is winning a Pulitzer for their curling coverage if this is the level that we get. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't handle that question. It was too much for me. Of course, Kelly Law looks like she'd rather be anywhere else. Uh, and the other thing on the fifth end break, I thought one of the highlights of the broadcast was the profile they did on the Schmirler team. Sandra Schmirler had just died yeah. uh, the year before, and they have the three other players. They have Shine, Shannon Clybrink who could come in to skip. And if we're looking at sort of dominant narratives in the sport at the moment, certainly on the women's side, that that's, I think, it, is that this, this event 
is shaped by the fact that Sandra Schmirler is not there in any form, right? She had started to broadcast a little bit after she had gotten sick. Mm. So the fact that Sandra Schmirler is not there, that serves as this overarching theme throughout the whole week. And it certainly comes across in the broadcast as well. Okay. So, so onto the sixth end. So, um, law hits and rolls open to sit two and Jones opts to draw around the corner guard. Jones makes the front end switch. Then here's where they have the, the, the hair broom conversation. So they get to the hack and Jones says, I want you to use the hair broom because of the frost. Jones ends up drawing back four. They sit shop, but it's half buried. So it's open and deep law hits and rolls out, which is potentially a fatal miss here. And then Jones draws back eight with a bit of a bounce to kind of like it's like basically it's it's back twelve weight, but she bounces off and it's she's almost misses that shot, but managed to hold on and hold it to three, three two. The last rock that's as nervous yeah. as I think Colleen Jones is in the game. Like they're nervous out of her hand. Uh, they needed yeah. to come. They needed to curl to get to the face of that <laughs> one in the back. Uh, and the discussion with the brooms. Yeah. I know we mentioned it earlier. That's really interesting too because. They're, they're trying to give it to Kim Kelly and Kim Kelly says, I'm not comfortable with the hair broom. And that, that I thought really stood yeah. out to me of like, what one, why are you uncomfortable with the hair broom? But this idea of who should have it, the inside sweeper versus the outside <laughs> sweeper and just the, the early stages mm. of a better understanding of the equipment and what it does and, and how you can best use it. Yeah, for sure. It's kind of it's kind of odd they made it all the way to a Scotty's vinyl and hadn't had a serious chat about what room material to use, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of interesting. <laughs> all right. So so end seven, and Julie Skinner I think makes another potential shot of the game candidate where she hits and rolls six feet all the way to the button fully buried, which is like it's a good shot. Um, Kim Kelly then flashes on the hit attempt. And then Kelly Law calls a conference. And again, I'm kind of surprised by the conference. And they debate drawing top eight or splitting the rings. And they worry about leaving a double for Colleen. I, I think, and then they spend a lot of time talking about which side they're going to throw it on. I, to me, I think today it's like any team today, I think just wrapping around and sitting top four on top and saying, try to beat us, right? Like either you're hitting the run double or you're drawing, you're drawing pin. But they, they don't do that. They opt to split, which I think is a bit of a strategy mistake. Julie Skinner goes back 12. Jones opts to play freeze. And this is kind of funny because the entire commentary from both Harris and McCusker and also Kelly Law during the conference is that we know Colleen's not going to play a freeze here, but Colleen actually opts to play a freeze, right? I think this is part of her strategy is wait until it's late in the end and then pounce. And she's she's decent, but a little heavy. So she she hits the freeze, but it bounces open just enough. Law is a hit and roll, but she knows hits the first attempt. Colleen Jones gets a double and just misses spilling all three. Like she almost got the triple here and Law is able to hit for two. And I think if Colleen Jones had been able to wrap her first freeze attempt, it's a force, but the, the, the double kind of gives Law the chance for her two. So it's, it's again, it's kind of interesting that the, the pounce late strategy here. Yeah, I, I agree. This is, this is one of those moments with Colleen Jones and Nova Scotia, the, I, I was almost watching it thinking that this is what you're waiting for. And Joan kind of flips this moment. And for the rest of the game, Jones is, or, or Joan McCusker is kind of on Colleen Jones's side a little bit uh, strategy wise. But it is <laughs> nice to see that you have, you have started to make shots and you, you are in this position now where you, you get the sense that Kelly Law is kind of uncertain in what, in what she really wants to do. 
and how she wants to to move forward with the strategy at this point. So it, it is this moment where it does feel like Colleen Jones has been waiting in the weeds and trying to to jump out. Uh, the other thing I noticed in this end, that, well, there's a couple of things. One, in the discussion that the the Team Canada has, Diane Nelson just opts out. She's has none of it. She stays at the hack, like I guess a good lead should. Yeah. And then <laughs> on uh, Kelly Law's first one, she's screaming still like, for the rock to curl and all that. And Julie Skinner as, as says, nice shot, a second before it t- uh, makes contact with the Nova Scotia stone, which I thought was kind of great just as a TV moment that the skip is screaming uh, still on the line call. And the third is just like, yeah, we got it. No problem. So I I kind of enjoyed that moment as well. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. Um, Great. Okay. So end eight. So the graphic starts off 1991 is the only time a team came back from down three in the Scotties final, which again, it's like, as you said, foreshadowing, right? Yeah. Jones then draws to sit two, and then Law's trying to draw around on her draw attempt, and it wrecks on the guard, right? And so McCusker suddenly realizes, it's kind of interesting, here's where McCusker switches, he suddenly realizes why Colleen's strategies worked, whereas Harris is still complaining about it. So now Colleen Jones draws for three, and the sweepers, this is the funny part, the sweepers tell Jones off on the sweeping call, uh... <laughs> And they basically, so Colleen's basically telling them to sweep and they're like, no, it's there. It's there. And Colleen Jones is chasing them behind yelling. And as someone who plays front ender competitively, that's actually really funny. Like, it's like, oh, we got this. The number of times I've had a skip chase me down and yell when it's like, you actually know, and they're just nervous. And so like props to the front end for ignoring their skip there. I gotta say. <laughs> <laughs> so three, three to Jones, anything else jump out on that end? Uh, on that Kelly law shot, it, that's another one where you kind of see a bit of indecision, I think, on what the weight should be as to whether or not mm. it's a straight draw or are they trying to yeah. move the the shot stone back in, in some way. And not having a clear sense of what they're trying to do seems like that might have contributed to the miss, that, that they're not direct in what they're trying to accomplish with that shot. Okay, so at nine. Uh, so Jones now goes, so now it's tied, right? So Jones goes top four. Harris again chastises Jones. He's saying, you're letting law dictate how the game is being played, right? But I actually think it's the total opposite here, right? Canada then hits, and then there's a hit and roll out by Nova Scotia. Then Canada draws back four, uh, nose hit from Nova Scotia. Wheatcroft opts to freeze, so she makes a freeze. Jones then calls a freeze on top of that. And Harris notes the frost in the wings is dictating the call. And I think that's kind of true. It's basically after Kelly Law's kind of slow shot the last end. Way here plays like a perfect freeze. It's a really good freeze. So it's now it's like, is Nova Scotia, Canada, Nova Scotia. Wheatcroft hits and rolls off the top stones to shit shot, but it kind of creates a little pocket. Kelly, Kim Kelly now knows hits to sit two. Skinner hits and rolls out. Jones then splits the rings to sit two. Skinner nose hits. Jones nose hits again to sit two. Law's, Law then nose hits. So it's a trade of nose hits. Uh, Colleen Jones hits and rolls out in her attempt. And so Law now has a shot at what I'd call a guttle. So the, I can't, again, it's, we're not uh, doing video, but it's basically the Jones shots, the, the Nova Scotia rocks locked in between two Canada stones. And there's another Nova Scotia counter in the back. And they have a long conversation about the angles. Um, after a long conference call, they opt to try it. So they're basically trying to pick out this stone and sit three and figuring it's all right to be down one with hammer. 
Skinner's convinced it's there for three, but Law isn't sure. And so Harris points out the frost may make the shot impossible. They call a timeout. Linda Dag Jackson comes down. And I think she makes a good timeout intervention and they don't listen to her. He said, what do you want to be next end? Do you want to be up one or down one? They never answer that question. They just ignore her and kind of keep talking about what turn they want to play. They opt to play the intern hit. And I think Harris is absolutely right here. that the, the shot's not there with the intern. You have to play out turn because of... Uh, I know Sean gets pissed off when, whenever uh, this is actually a good example of the gear effect, the way the momentum is going to transfer off the stone on the intern as opposed to the outturn. I, I agree that with Mike, that it, it's just not there with the intern loss stuffs it. And then, so basically she stuffs it. The stone doesn't roll out and Jones ends up stealing the end because of the way it bounces off the guttle. Right. And so now Nova Scotia's up six, five, right. The, does that third rock leave the house with today's rocks with the striking bands? with the narrower striking bands that allow for more of the, the ping pong ball effect that we see today. Yes. In 2020, the shot stone is in the first row. Uh, like it, it's flying. Up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it's, it's striking bands plus frost, right? You don't, you don't have that kind of crazy frost in, in 2020 championship ice. Um, but I think that the flip side is, I think me, there's a chance that everything then spills. Like you basically go bop, 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 and your stone also flies off. Like it's not, the angles weren't great in that sense. Like I think Julie Skinner is convinced it's there and it's probably their outturn. But the trick then is, can you stick your shooter and spill all the stones you want while, while uh, losing all the ones you don't? So here's the question. What, what do you prefer? Do you prefer today's striking bands where you can see the amazing crosshouse doubles or, you know, the shots like Dunstone through at, uh, at the Briar last year, do you prefer that, or do you prefer the wider striking bands where you don't get as much action in the house, but you do see steel more steals like this? I think there should be a balance between the two. I think it's gotten a little ridiculous today that you could have like freezes aren't part of the game anymore. Like you can't freeze a stone uh, and and have it be a two shot removal for the other team. So that is a little frustrating, and to see eight the first eight shots at the end create angles and then the ninth shot at the end just be a hulk smash and they all go away i don't find that as interesting and i think in in this the angles are a little more interesting to think about because the stones aren't as aren't as lively uh this might be a little too extreme you know when like as jonathan said in the eighth end where Kelly Law throws a nine second hit and the stone that she hits doesn't come out of play. She gets it out of the rings, but not out of play. That's a little too extreme on the other side. So I think a balance somewhere between those two is a little much, but I do think today it has swung too much in the direction of action in the house uh, on the stones. I, I would trade getting rid of the frost and leaving the old striking bands here. Cause I, I think there's a shot there with normal striking bands. If you're not throwing into like the rough, with the discussion uh, about the shot, th- this is one of my biggest pet peeves in curling at all levels, uh, but certainly happens at the rec league, rec level a lot. And if this happens, if you're in this situation, don't do this. Kelly Law says multiple times, I don't think it's there. She says it to all three members of her team. She says it to the coach. And yet the team continues to try to force her into the shot. As soon as the person throwing the shot says, I don't think it's there, then that's it. That's the end of the discussion, especially when that person is the skip. And that is when they needed to make the transition to what do we want to do? Uh, 
do we want to try to score or do we pitch it away and be down one? And again, this is, and as I was watching this and I'm writing, and I'm writing in all caps to myself for whatever reason, but like, stop talking about (laughs) whether or not you should throw the shot. It's clear that she doesn't want to try it. So listen to the skip and then make your decision. And it's also surprising to me that they haven't had this discussion before the ninth end of what do they want to do? Because that switch in the middle of the end from hitting to the freeze is very confusing to me. I don't understand it. It feels like Colleen Jones is saying, let's go to 10, which is an advantage for Kelly Law. And it just, this I think is the moment they lose the game. I know it goes to an extra end, but this really feels like such a, a miss. The whole end, the whole ninth end for Kelly Law. Sean, both you and I put this down as one of Jonathan's questions for most interesting strategic decision. And it happens right here, and it's with Wheatcroft's second shot. And there's one stone in the house and nothing else on the board, and you have Hammer in a tie game in nine, and they chose to freeze. And I don't think there's a player alive that does that in 2021. No. (laughs) I don't think so at all, right? Like you take your blank and you have hammer and ten, like that, uh, like that shot calling weak, weak calling the the freeze with Wheatcroft's second shot lost them the game. I agree. Yeah, I mean they they blank that end. They have hammer coming home, right? Yeah. <laughs> in, in in three rock free guards on you, like your odds are pretty good there. Jones has given you the blank to give you hammer and ten, and you you didn't take it. Yeah, of course, but. I, I say this as someone who has curled for, for, for 10 years only on arena ice and Kelly law has only been to the Olympics. So take that for what it's worth. <laughs> I mean, fi- finals do weird things to you, right? It's, it's as much a battle of nerves and it, partly nerves, but also just staying in the moment. Like I can think of a lot of brain farts by famous curl. There's, there's probably a similar one by Gushu in the mid two thousands where he's playing. Glenn, where he's playing Glenn Howard, and he basically says, "If we make this shot, we're the Briar champs." The shot's not there, and he throws. <laughs> he basically throws the game away, right? Like, there's a lot, and you know, like Brad Gushu's, you know, probably the, you know, arguably the best skip on the planet right now. Um, but you see these these kind of moments where even like the very best players under high pressure situations make decisions that are just weird. And I think this is one of those weird decisions in a high pressure moment, right? trying to force the win rather than recognizing you have the advantage. I do wonder how much Georgina Weecroft missing into plays into this decision. It's the, the stone is in a very similar spot and she flashed it earlier in the game. I do wonder if that's running through Kelly Law's mind. So and 10. So now Canada has two corner guards up. Jones throws a guard. Weecroft flashes her appeal attempt. Jones throws up a double guard. Canada peels. Skinner makes a great double peel, but she st- the roll is terrible. It basically staggers the corner guard. Jones guards. Skinner plays a run back. And Harris points out there's a triple peel that they don't play. And I think I, I agree with him. I think they make a, a fatal mistake and not clearing earlier, right? So they, they basically had a chance to triple peel and open it all up. Colleen Jones guards. They now have a conference. and They really have nothing because they didn't clear on, on uh, Skinner's second. Law opens it up a bit and bounces, and then one of their guards rolls top 12. And then Harris here, I think, picks something out. He, he immediately identifies the fact that the way the, the two corner guards are staggered basically runs it right back into the Nova Scotia stone. 
And Colleen Jones actually doesn't see that at all. She just guards it. And then um, she comes down and they, they cut down. They're all hugging. And then the, the one I love here is you hear Kim Kelly say, be prepared for the extra. We've got to be prepared for the extra here, right? We can't assume the game's over. So there's a run back. So, so Law makes the run back. And the drama here is great, right? So Jones walks over to Kim Kelly. They're embracing. They can't even watch the shot. Kelly Law makes the run back, but doesn't stick the shooter. So she peels out the stone. But because the other one rolled in on the first clearing attempt, they, are, they, they get the one and force the extra. So what jumped out here? I think everybody except Kim Kelly thought that this was the last shot of the game, that either she would stick it and win, or she would rub that yellow guard and wick away, and Jones would steal and win. I think everyone assumed that one of those two things was was going to happen, and Kim Kelly was the only one who saw that, yeah, we could go to an extra here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And I think that the run back, I think Mike Harris kind of misrepresents how easy that shot was. He say he, this is what Mike Harris does all the time. Everything is there. It's easy. You just got to hit it. Uh, right. That, that's sort of his MO as a broadcaster, but the stones are separated. So you're not going to get, it doesn't seem like you're going to get drag on it. So I think that complicates yeah. the shot a little bit. So it's a lot harder than the way they're talking about it. And the fact that, that the Colleen Jones guard, the second one, it, I think it is deep enough to cut off the possibility that Kelly law could stick it. Uh, I think it did come deep enough where the angle mm. isn't quite yeah, there. I agree. So it, I, it's a much more complicated yeah. shot than I think they present it in the broadcast. Yeah. And that, that if she stuffs it, that's probably one of the great all time Scotty's oh, winners, yeah. right? It's an all, yeah, it's an all timer. Even though, even though you're talking about like today, just, you know, a run back like today it's whatever it happens almost every end the, the the way that the one guard is positioned just makes that shot so hard that i i don't think she's going to hit and stick she's going to have to hit and not roll out like i agree with you sean there's no way that she just hits it and noses it and sticks right there it's going to have to like bite on the 12 to count as the second rock to win yeah, and it's so hard given the ice conditions that you don't want to play. Like today, you could probably do that with like hack weight and remove the shot stone from play. In these conditions, you have to throw the up weight to ensure that that shot stone is going to be out of the rings. And therefore, the shot that you're sending back is going to roll out. And I was thinking too, even they, they make a comment after Nova Scotia does that they were, it's glad that Nancy Delahunt had the hair broom to sweep out the raised stone out of the rings. But I was also thinking that it kind of touches a stone, right, that's out of play. And in today's game, that mm. stone might have done the, the, the spin back in, the, the spin back up half a rock to be in play. So oh. it, it, it was it was a lot closer than I remembered it. And I had seen this shot before. But in the moment, watching it again, mm. uh, it, it was a lot. She was a lot closer to making it than I thought it was possible as I was looking at the angles. Okay, so this sets up the extra, which is kind of always exciting. Way makes a, a great shot here. She basically clears everything up front and spills in two Nova Scotia stones into the rings. Kelly Law opts to draw and ends up biting top eight. So she doesn't quite sink it as enough as she has. So there's now a bunch of stones around the rings. Colleen Jones calls a timeout and they debate a bunch of options. And here's like, so here's the reverse of what you're saying, Sean. They say to they say to Colleen, "You pick your shot. 
right? You pick, we don't care. You're the skip. You throw what you want to throw here. And I think that's great. If you're not skipping and you're not throwing the final rock in a national championship, you let the skip pick the shot they feel. She opts for the outturn, which is her shot, right? She says, I'm playing the outturn hit and roll. There's a draw there. There's an intern hit and roll. But she says, I'm playing the outturn hit and roll. She, she plays it. <laughs> then the other bit of drama is she slipped on her first shot attempt out of the hack. She gets the hack. She decides the hack is slippery. So she goes into the bag, <laughs> takes a mitt out, and puts the mitt down to drive out of the hack, <laughs> which I think is kind of crazy. Right, like you haven't thrown that way the entire game, and now it's a national championship winning shot. And you're gonna do that, but you know if it works, it works. So um, Harris goes, I can't believe she's doing it, which I agree with. But she hits and she rolls, and then no one knows what's going on. So they basically everyone has to call for a measure. How close do you think it is? Do you think it's clear to you or not? Who has it? I thought it was pretty clear, but again, I also yeah. already knew who won. So maybe that was influencing <laughs> the view of it, but I, I thought it was pretty, I think if you're Julie Skinner, you're calling for the met, like, of course you're calling for the measure, yeah. but I don't think it was, Yeah. If, if this was, you know, Monday morning at the Scott, uh, in the second end of a game, they're kicking them, right? It, it's a measure because of the circumstance. Yeah. I mean, the, oh, you can't yeah. always trust the overhead camera. So I can, yeah, but, but based off of where the overhead camera was, I thought it was going to be Nova Scotia. But it, yeah, it is rare at, uh, for the, the championship game to come down to a measure like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So does that, so do you think it's a classic? Yes or no? So you're like a bit, not, you're not persuaded on the classic nature of it. I mean, it's a classic it's, finish. I think you know, we kind of had the, we kind of had this discussion, and I said, okay, how many? What other games can you think of that the game itself isn't well played? And there's a huge difference between not liking a game because of the strategy and the style of play from the two teams, and it just not being a well played game. This was not a well played game, and to, to me, it comes to mind that the '98. Game six of the 98 finals between the Bulls and the Jazz, especially after, you know, re-watching the last dance and then re-watching that game. Everyone remembers the finish because Jordan goes into the phone booth in the last 60 seconds of the game, has a couple of amazing plays, including the last second shot to win. If you watch that game, it is trash. It is the most garbage basketball game. Like, <laughs> like tell me the final score of that game. Tell me the final score of that game. Was it like 92, 80? No, neither team made it into the 90s. It's like 86, 85. (laughs) It's a garbage basketball game. But Michael Jordan steals the ball from Malone, makes the shot. It's, It's at the time the last shot of his career, and everyone remembers that. It's trash. <laughs> and that's kind of maybe not on quite that level, but it's this is not a well played game that has an amazing finish. That and that's all you need to remember. Yeah. <laughs> all right. So let's do our, our run back, uh, run it back <laughs> kind of ten things. So, what's the biggest difference between this game and a twenty twenty curling game? I had the ice intolerance. Um, one, the I, I mean, you look at it. At, at most, you're getting four feet of curl, and you. You have a lot of shots that slip behind the tee, and the the commentators say, "Oh, that's a nice shot." Where today, if it slips behind tee, the opponent draws down, freezes, and the end's over. 
What, what do you think, Sean? Uh, yeah, similarly, it's the lack of precision in here. There, There is no precision in a lot of the shots, and that would be related to the ice, certainly, but they're just off on everything. Everything is sort of a quarter make or a half make, uh, so there's that. And then the communication back and forth the lack of precision on that side too that they're not really sure how to communicate with each other and you see it both during shots a poor communication potentially contributing to some of the misses but then also the way that they're talking to the skips like kim kelly does it a few times where she's just has this running narrative and colleen jones right before she's going to throw says what and Kim Kelly just says, never mind. Kim Kelly even a couple times is talking to Colleen Jones as Colleen Jones is kicking out. Uh, and part of that is because Colleen Jones just goes, just gets in the hack and goes. Uh, and then the discussion in nine, yeah. the way the team talks to Kelly Law. Like, I don't think you would see that today, given the focus on communication and sports psychology and all that. Uh, so, so that just really stood out to me. Yeah. So for me, it's the complete amateurism. Like, And so... Julie Skinner, this is this is amazing to me. There's actually an interview with her on the Legends of Curling podcast, which I recommend listening to. There's also one with Kim Kelly. So if you want to kind of dig more into this final, uh, those are two great things to listen to. But Julie Skinner had to commute to Vancouver every week to play a club game on Team Law in order to be eligible to play down as Team Canada, right? That's That's like... That's bonkers. That, that, that does not happen in, in 2021, right? And if you know... If you know kind of West Coast geography, that's a that's a three three and a half hour trip by ferry, right? It's not not that easy, or it's a lot of money to fly by plane. Um, and then Colleen Jones, same thing. It's a, it's basically it's a club team that plays down, right? They're basically you know a team of four four good curlers, obviously from the Mayflower Curling Club, but it's not one of these like national uh, competitive teams, if you will. Okay, next category: Player of the Game. So who who have you got, uh, Ryan? Uh, I've got Kim Kelly. Um, good shooting, except for her very last rock in 11, um, decent sweeping besides the, despite what Sean says, I think for 90, I think for 2001, she swept pretty well. And, uh, most importantly, she knew not when to not listen to Colleen Jones while sweeping. (laughs) 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 Who'd you have Sean? I have uh, Colleen Jones as the player of the game, mostly for the first half where the front end uh, is really struggling. Uh, The shot in four against three to only give up a steal of one is huge. And then that hit and roll in the fifth end to the freeze on her last one. I think that is the shot of the game. And so her being able to save her team and ensure that they are at least in a position to come back in the second half. Uh, So I give it to Colleen Jones. All right, I, I have Julie Skinner, who had the highest shooting percentage, and she, I mean, she didn't really miss anything, right? She shot 89% and made several big shots throughout the game. Um, and I think, you know, it's like, like an 89% shooting percentage of your third is kind of equivalent to what you'd get in today's kind of Scotty's playoff games, but the other shooting percentage is still significantly lower. So I think she's, it's kind of like kind of worth noting that too. All right, third category is what we call the TSN turning point. So how would curling history be different if X hadn't happened? So Sean is the historian. Uh, what do you think? The, what, what's your counterfactual history, historical moment here? So I, I wonder if Colleen Jones loses this game, is she as polarizing of a figure to people? Does a loss, especially in this way where she has this comeback, and so let's say Kelly Law sticks it in 10 or 
Colleen Jones noses in the 11th and, and Kalila wins. Is there some easing or softening of the feeling towards Colleen Jones as this team goes into their run? And maybe they don't go on the run the, the same way they, they do, but having this crushing loss of Colleen Jones, does that change the narrative of the fans around her and the way that we think about her? I mean, that basically makes her Pat Ryan, right? Because then because you you have a crushing loss in a final, and then you play defensively, 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 and go on a huge run. Yeah. Yeah, maybe, for sure. Uh, what's the moment for you, Ryan? Uh, I think it's Law's run back in 10. I mean, if she scores two on that, it's it, then we see it every year. Okay, what? So mine's if the measure goes Kelly Law's way. Right. And I kind of wonder similar, maybe not, I wasn't thinking of like more sympathy, but just does she even go on that four year run as team Canada? Right. Is it, does it, is it that kind of altering in terms of curling history? So who's beating her then? Like in this sort of counterfactual, she loses this game and we say, well, she's not, maybe she doesn't go on this run, but who else is out there that is going to win these events? Who's going to win the national championship in those years? Because we're not quite at the point, as you say, of professionals, professional curlers. Uh, it's still very amateur. Jennifer Jones is a few years away yet. Uh, Kelly Scott is a few years away yet. Like, uh, what is the competition level for Colleen Jones in these years? It, it almost feels Furby-esque in that you look around at the fields and say, yeah, of course they won. And maybe that's just thinking back because they won. That's why we think that. But when you think of that run, it's not like she was coming up against teams that really stand out as being being super great. I mean, Mary-France LaRouche is fun, and they're always fun to, to watch. But And Sherry Madaw certainly had her struggles in playoffs, including this year in 2001. So I don't know who's standing up against them, especially once Kelly Law and this team goes away after the 2002 Olympics. I, so that's a great question. So I think like the... So one of the reasons why I'm like, is she underrated is I think if you go back to kind of 2000s curling conventional wisdom, it's Kathy Borst and Heather Nedowin kind of, they've just won, but that's like a strong Alberta team. There's Cheryl Bernard is kind of coming out of Alberta, Shannon Clybrink, none of whom ever really like, I mean, two of the three of them end up going to the Olympics, but none of them ever really put together serious, like dominant Scotty's runs. But if you'd gone, if you could go to a time machine and go back to 1998 and say, who have you got money on for winning four of the next six Scotties? Is it Heather Nedowin? Is it Cheryl Bernard, Kathy Boris, like the Alberta teams? Or I think Sherry, Sherry Madaw was kind of seen as the, the force in Ontario and kind of seen as the obvious one to go on a big run also. And I think what's interesting is none of them ever did. And Colleen Jones at this point, in 1998, Colleen Jones was looked at as, oh, that's the nice team from Nova Scotia. It shows up every year, makes a tiebreaker, loses, and they go, and Colleen Jones then does the weekend curling commentary, right? And there's something really interesting about the way she flipped that script and just kind of won five out of six. And I don't think in late 90s curling, at least, she was would have been pegged by the experts for doing that. Right. She's kind she's she's kind of like Suzanne Burt, your favorite curler. <laughs> like she's there every year. She puts on this great show and we root for her. But then imagine Suzanne Burt becomes like, you know, a slam team. Right. And it's kind of like, how, how did she pull that off? It's a bit it's a bit of a mystery. Right. Or it certainly was to curling circles, I think, back then. 
Yeah, she's like Suzanne Burt, except that Suzanne Burt wants rocks and play and plays more exciting games. Yeah, but but, but she does. Suzanne Burt's doing the same thing. It's like, it's like Ryan's saying. She does the opposite. She's just like, I'm going to draw you to death as opposed to hit you to death. But I'm going to play an extreme strategy. Forget, this, forget the kind of, of Curling Canada approved playbook. I'm going to do it my way. And I'll, I'll go down swinging, which I love too. Yeah. yeah. And I think the, the other thing that goes along with this is, I know I mentioned it earlier, but this vacuum of Sandra Schmirler's not there. So there needs to be that next top team. And if you go from the belovedness, the universal belovedness of Sandra Schmirler, now the next top team is this Colleen Jones team. That is a big change in just perception and the way they are on the ice and the way people think about them. So I do think that that kind of contributes to how we think of this era. And if Colleen Jones is underrated, it's because it's coming right after the the Schmirler era. Yeah. She's kind of stuck between two. She's stuck between the Schmirler era and the, the basically Jones era, right? The, yeah. the Jen Jones era. And uh, I think, I think the other thing is they don't ever win an Olympic trials and don't go, don't get to go to the Olympics, which I think these days is kind of the other thing you need to be, be a great, right? Yeah. And the struggles at the um, world championship too, that they, they always struggled yeah. with the world championship. So that certainly contributed to the way Canadian fans thought of them. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So what do we have for shot of the game? I have the hit and roll in five Colleen Jones hit and roll in five. One of the only called make perfect shots, hundred percent uh, game saver. So that's mine. Yeah, I agree. And that's, that's tough. I think, I think, like I think because we're so used to granite flying, like we like all the you know spill twenty shots, twenty stones kind of shots. But like a hit roll freeze is as tough as it gets. I think. Uh, in the spirit of this game, it, it's a miss. It's it's law rubbing the garden eight, and then Jones scores three to tie it. Like that. That's it. Giving up, giving up, going up three, and then giving up three the next end. That's I mean that's the huge turning point, and it comes off of her rubbing the guard on her last draw. Okay, weird stacked or factoid. So I've got Julie Skinner shooting 89% in the final. And so she's kind of really shooting really well. Everyone else is either low 80s or below. Wheatcroft's in the 60s. So it's it's not great shooting by today's standard, but Julie Skinner stands out with her shot making for sure. What do you have, Sean? I have the... Colleen Jones made the one-two game with a seven and four record and that they were three and four at one point during the week. And you have a five-way tie here for second place uh, or sorry, a four-way tie for second place. So you have a tiebreaker at seven and four and then Colleen Jones in that, that one-two game. And we'll see within a decade, there are a couple events where seven and four doesn't get you anything uh, and that four losses is too many. So this, to me, it just, speaks to how open these events were again that amateur level of where we were in 2001 Mm -hmm. that no one's really running away with anything and anybody could beat anybody else on any given day yeah for sure so uh who's what's age the best from this event so i think it's the event itself the tournament hearts like it's just so good it's my favorite event uh of the year every single year uh the hearts in the in the the button i love it so much the logos are still the same around the the house you still have the purex that's all the same cottonelle uh, the event itself is great and you just see where it is today from where it was then uh, not just in terms of the quality of play and the opportunities for women curlers 
at the highest level. Uh, but you know, the money that goes along with it, the coverage of it, everything itself, I think the tournament has aged very well since 2001. Yeah. And so what do you have, Ryan? Uh, holding the championship in CHL arenas. Cause it, I mean, you look at it, the crowd's great. I mean, there's quote unquote only 5,000 people there, but 5,000 sounds like 10,000 in that arena. Yeah, I've got Ken Bagnell, who's Colleen Jones's coach, and he's a sports psychologist. So I think, I think here's where Colleen's a bit ahead of the curve. Like she decided to hire a sports psychologist and bring him as bring him as her bench coach, and that's like a lot of teams do that now, like Kevin Cooey does. But she's, I think, early to adopt some of the sports psychology. I think a little bit of a little bit of it's kind of still got to be worked out. But I was in a seminar with Ken Bagnell, and he said one of the things they did. Uh, early on is they realized that Colleen Jones struggled a lot with the pressure draws. And so when they're training practice, what they do is he, he would just say one time of practice, I'm just going to say, you have to call the, you have to draw the button and it'd be anytime in practice and you just call it. And they weren't allowed to move on until Colleen covered the pin. And he said, just by drilling her to have to throw the pressure draw, um, that eventually she overcame that. And if you, you see in this game, the number of times she has to make a pressure draw to save the game, you can kind of see the practice kind of drilling in then. So she's kind of early to drawing, to building in on it. I think, I think Sean kind of caught a lot of the communication stuff that seems a bit debated here, but um, it was kind of interesting that she's early to kind of bring him into the game. I've got one more that I think aged the best, and I'm going to say it because I'm looking at the notes here and I see what Sean has under age the worst. And I'm going to say kilts aged the best. I'd like to bring them, bring them back. And in fact, I'd like to see Team Mallet uh, in kilts at Worlds. I'd say bring them, bring them back. I think kilts aged the, aged right. the best. And like everything, that's, a great everything that's in style is eventually in style again. Uh, and I think that that kilts, uh, file, the, file kilts under that. I think they're in style again. I say bring them back, even on the men's side. Let's do it. All right, so Sean, why do you have kilts as what's age the worst? It doesn't feel athletic. It doesn't. It's not really athletic wear to wear a kilt. And in an era where curling was still, it still is today, but it's pushing for recognition as an athletic endeavor, as a quote-unquote real sport, the kilts just throw off this vibe that that's not the case. It feels very Highland Games. Like, let's, let's finish the curling game, go outside, and we'll do the caber toss. You think it's unathletic to do the caper toss? That stuff is hard, man. If they can do that in kilt, yeah, no. It's, uh, I don't think kilts are unathletic at all. Is this the last, is the Jones rank the last rank to curl with kilts? I think so. I mean, I've, I, I've seen it at the rec level. Like Drunk guys will show up at a bond spiel every so often in kilts. But you know, in terms of the ultra competitive national level teams, I'm pretty sure they're the last to do it. I have never seen anyone in Scotland curl in a kilt. I'll say that. I see it a lot in Canada, but it's like one of those things where. That's what I said. I'm not sure if it's because it would be. I mean, maybe you're right. I said one of the things that might be holding curling back from becoming uh, a more diverse sport is the Scottish cosplay aspect. So maybe that's it. If no one in Scotland is actually doing it, then maybe, maybe it really is just Scottish cosplay. There's there's a lot of stuff that's done in Canada that's Scottish that you'll never see at a Scottish bond spiel, <laughs> including you don't get piped out. Like I made a final my first year here and I was like, oh, I'm going to get piped out in Scotland. And I said, Did we get piped out. And they're like, 
why would we do that? (laughs) 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 You at least got Drambui, right? I did get some Drambui. So the the drinking is is authentic. The kilts and the bagpiping may be a bit less so. All right. Uh, for me, for what's age of the worst, I have the sweeping. I think that I think it's clear nobody knew what sweeping could do. <laughs> like, the, like all the conversation about the hair broom and everything else. There's a lot of theories, but nobody really knows what's going on. And then the techniques definitely age badly. So much so that I went to a clinic like early 2000s, and I remember the way they taught us to hold the broom was high up, and they wanted you to to do the the narrow side of the performance brush head, not the thick side that everyone does now. Like. Literally everything I was taught by level three curling Canada instructors in 2000 about sweeping is now wrong. It's just like, you're not supposed to do it that way at all. And there's a lot of that technique in this game. So that was pretty, that was pretty funny to me. Ryan, what do you have for what's age the worst? Uh, Four feet of curl. Uh, So here's the debate. Uh, If you're like me and occasionally you advocate for not making the ice perfect anymore, like this is, this is the perfect thing to watch. You watch this game. And then watch a game from the, from today. And if you found this game more interesting because you had no idea from shot to shot if a shot was going to be made or not, then you probably do want them to, to stop making the ice so good. But if you prefer today's game and prefer the incredible shot making that we see and just incredible shot makers doing incredible stuff, uh, then, yeah, keep perfecting the ice. Yeah. So I, I kind of I'm not sure where I, I kind of go back and forth on this. Um, and there's, there's several things that are different, right? The striking bands, um, the stones are textured now. So there's like that hook finish, like it's like five to six feet of curl sometimes. And then the no frost. I, I kind of like a little bit of trickiness in the ice. Cause I think that's a skill. And I think that skill has been taken out of it in a certain sense. Like there's not like the elite players don't really have to do that much serious ice reading, but, um, I don't, I don't know if like playing in frost kind of sucks, like even just play, like watching it sucks, but also like the frostiness I could do without maybe the, the texturing could be a little bit less aggressive is what I'd say. And maybe the striking band's a little bit less aggressive. What do you think, Sean? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I think too, that since we have so many events now, we could mix it up. I, I, th- I really think the grand slam should do almost like a tennis thing where one event is like the straight ice event uh or versus the curly ice event or or, (laughs) you know change the striking bands in some events just to change that up a little bit because i like a little when it's a little straighter and you have to try to play more hit and rolls and you have to finagle the angles a little better and once you're buried it actually matters that you're buried that you know you, you can't just come around and play a hack weight shot and it'll curl to the nose of a perfectly buried stone so yeah, I think if we could mix it up a little bit, it would make the watching experience more interesting. All right. So who who do we think won the week? Who do you have, Ryan? Uh, the, the Sanders Schmerler Foundation. Uh, like you said, Jonathan, one of the, the best moments was, or maybe it was Sean, one of the best moments was the tribute to Sandra that they did where they talked to all of her teammates, and then you have the check presentation uh, during during the broadcast and that kind of tying that foundation to this event, I think goes a long way to making this event so beloved. And like you said, Sean, it's one of my favorite events uh, throughout the year. And I, I, uh, the, the fact that it's tied to a charity probably in my head kind of contributes to that. 
I've got defensive curling. <laughs> Hunting is winning. Punting is winning. <laughs> what do you have, Sean? I say that uh, it's a tie between Don Whitman and the Frost. One. <laughs> All right. When did Don Whitman stop call? Was it when CBC lost uh, the season of champions? Or I think it was after. I think it was after 2002 is my recollection. I could be wrong on that, but I, I, I seem to recall after the Olympics that someone like Bruce Rainey came in after that. Okay. Yeah. So I, I kind of do miss the Don and Don show. Um, all right. So this is the last one's too early, too late, or just right. So the idea is who here kind of sh- what they did was like on time. Were they too soon or were they, you know, hit it just right? Were they too late kind of thing? So I, I've got too early is Julie Skinner. And I think the reason Skinner is too early is she's, there's a couple of things that are just interesting about her to me. So she wins two Scotties, uh, two world silvers, uh, two, no, sorry, she wins two Scotties, two silvers at the Scotties. She goes to two Olympics and gets two bronzes, a world silver and a world gold. She really only played from 1989 to 2002, but she actually took like a hiatus mid 2000. So she goes to the Scotties 1989, 91, 92, 93, stops curling competitively, gets invited back six years later to play in the Kelly Law team in 98, 99, 2000, gets to the 2000, um, gets to the 2002 Olympics and then retires again. So she basically made 40% of the Scotties finals in Scotties she played. She made both of the Olympics that she played down for. Um, and she's kind of notable for, for a couple other things. She, she basically had what I'd call the modern curling delivery. If you, and you kind of you look at this game, it's interesting because a lot of the people a bit older than her still have pretty major technical faults. I'd say she's actually the, probably the best pure hitter in 90s women's curling. Right. And she also kind of very early on embraced coaching. So she embraced, uh, she worked with Elaine Dag Jackson from start to finish. And Elaine Dag Jackson is now the national team leader. So she's, I think, a little bit too early. Like her game, I think part of the reason she just retires is nothing else for her to do. She's done everything by the time she's 32 that there was to do in curling. There's no, there's no slam, there's no money. So she just wins her stuff and goes away. Um, and then I think just right, <laughs> I've got Colleen Jones. So this is like her peaking, right? So she wins six Scotties, and this is the start of her four-year run. And that's the record for both consecutive titles. And she's tied with Jen Jones now for most overall titles. She also has the best longevity in curling, either male or or female, right? So her first championship's in 82. The last is in 2004. So it's a 22-year run. She wins two world championships, and so she's basically got this 22 year run. Whereas Kevin Martin, if you go from like first championship to last, so first Briar to last is uh, 18 years. If you kind of roll in the Olympics in 2010, maybe 20 years, you could argue. Perhaps you say like his late, his late kind of post John Morris run adds a little bit, but he doesn't w- really win anything big after the the Vancouver 2010. You also throw in there a mixed gold, a Canadian and World Seniors gold. And she finished runner-up in last year's Nova Scotia. So is she the Tom Brady of curling, Ryan? <laughs> I mean, yeah, for number of titles yeah. and longevity, yes. All right. Will Tom Brady be in the Super Bowl at 60? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> 
All right. What do you think, Sean? Who do you have as too early, too late, or just right? I, I really agree with what you have there, Jonathan, that uh, Julie Skinner and, and Kelly Law are too early. If they're five, six years later, they can play longer because there's more avenues for them to, to play. So I, I agree that they're a little too early in, in what they're doing. And yeah, and, and just right for Colleen Jones in this team. They they fill that void that's, that's in the sport in Canada in the, in the women's game. So uh, with that, and I don't, I don't think anyone's too late in this either. I think uh, the sort of it's the, the team that's a little too early, not quite in the right era, unfortunately, and then the team that is in the right spot at the right time. Yeah. All right. Any last thoughts for this, Ryan or Sean? I just think that that's why that the reason that it's important is one, uh, Colleen Jones, and it's, it's starting her run, and then two, kind of realizing the need to improve the playing surface that if you know the the playing surface really is the it's the third team and both teams wind up having to play against their opponent and against the playing surface and I think that that's one of the more unique things about our sport is really you're playing against two opponents uh, and just the need to improve that that third team that's out there to become truly a professional sport. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And I think the other thing that I would say just about this game is that for rec players, I think there's a lot of a lot of this game that is instructive uh, in, in terms of how to deal with ice, how to call games, how to communicate with each other way more than a modern game is, because today they're all basically professionals that th- this is a very instructive game to, to go back and watch to see what it was like back then. And, and you know, today in, in February and March, you notice at the rec level that people start to play crazier shots. A lot more people thinking that doubles and triples are easy to make. Whereas if you go back to this, this game 20 years ago, it's a lot more reflective of what the sport was, I think, at all levels. So it, it, at, at that point, there wasn't as much of a divide. And I, I do think that this is a really uh, interesting time capsule for that moment of, of curling. Uh, and, and I agree with everything Ryan said too, is this launching of Colleen Jones into the early part of the aughts. All right. So thanks for joining us, Sean. What, what's going on on your podcast uh, with the Scotties coming up? Yeah. So we are going to release our, uh, Game of Stones, Fergus Curling Club, Scotty's Mega Preview presented by Canada 3000 and Zellers uh, coming up this week. So uh, check that out. We'll go through all 18 teams. And then during the event, uh, and this is what we'll announce on the podcast, we are going to do uh, daily live shows after the afternoon draw. So we're going to do Facebook Live. And what we're going to do is we're just going to tweet out the link. And anybody who wants to come in and ask a question of us, uh, we'll, we'll do that. So we'll hang out after the afternoon draw. Certainly, if you guys want to hang out one day, um, more than welcome to, to do that. But uh, since it's in Calgary, we didn't want to do the daily podcast after the last draw. So this is what we thought we'd do. It'd be fun if people want to come hang out with us uh, every day. So I, we're really looking forward to it, uh, to the Scotties. I think this will be a fun one. It's, it's a great field. So It'll be a, a good time over on the podcast. Uh, where can every where can everybody find you? Yeah, so uh, search Game of Stones wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us gameofstonespod.com. Uh, we do have uh, a couple blog posts there, all the episodes, merch. 
over there. Uh, and then Twitter and Instagram at Game of Stones Pod. All right. Well, thanks for joining us today. Again, two hours. We'll have to figure out a way to do this more quickly <laughs> in the future. Um, I, I edit out the play-by-plays anyway, man. Like, did you not notice that the you? first time where there's no. like whole ends <laughs> missing from from that first one you did? <laughs> Apparently, you don't listen I, to the shows yeah. either. <laughs> my my wife listens to the shows, but you want to know why? I assume to make fun of you. No, to fall asleep. Oh. <laughs> if she can't sleep, she goes to the back room and says, oh, your voice is soothing. So <laughs> that's another possible use for this podcast. <laughs> At least someone's getting use out of it. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Sean. Thanks, guys. Uh, and I guess we'll see. Yeah, see you all soon. Thank you for listening to Rocks Across the Pond, a curling podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app, and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon.